part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to chapter 9 of Isaiah. For the next four weeks, we're going to be in Isaiah. And it's an Old Testament book. He was a prophet. He was, uh, he was living in a time when there was some tumultuous things going on for the, the people of Israel. Uh, they had some good days, but they had a lot of challenging days. Kind of sounds like the day that you and I live in. They knew without a doubt that they were God's people. And at the same time, they didn't always feel like just everything, you know, that God was working everything out in their day and their time, especially their timing. That sounds a lot like us, too. That we have certain things that we just wish that God would hurry up and do and fix things in our lives. And so we're going to start uh, this four-week series on Advent. And, and Advent basically comes from a Latin word that means coming. But uh, closely associated with this coming is waiting. Because when something is coming, coming attractions, you're waiting for it. Have you ever been to the, the movies and they start showing all these, you know, little trailers of, of the movies that are coming and you're going, man, that looks like that's going to be a pretty good movie. And then it says coming out fall of 2021. And you're going, man, they, they already have a trailer for it, but you know, it's going to be two or three years before it comes out. And so you're waiting then and you're waiting for that next movie or whatever that, you know, the, the conclusion of the story that you're about to see that day. Well, in one way, when we look at the Bible, we get a lot of promises we have promises that were made at a time when God said, okay, this is going to be fulfilled, sometimes in their own generation. Then other times it was not going to be fulfilled for quite some time. Advent has two main kind of purposes of focusing on this coming of Christ. The first is to look back at the first coming of Christ and see that God did fulfill every one of his promises. Now, promises kept in the past can lead us to be encouraged about those promises that are still unkept for the future. When we're waiting, just as we saw in Psalms, remember Psalm 77, when he really got into this very dark place and he said, God, will you, will you forget to even be gracious? What was it that brought him back? He, he began to think about the faithfulness of God in the past. And it was that past faithfulness that kind of spurred him on to future faithfulness. And he said, okay, God, I, I don't like that I'm in this dark place. It still feels like we're kind of, you know, a long ways apart. But God, I know that you are faithful. Advent allows us to anticipate not only that first coming of Christ and grow in encouragement, but really look to the second coming of Christ. One of the first things I can remember as a kid going to the the church when I was real little, uh, my dad would drop me off at church and, and I'd go in and I really didn't have a lot of, you know, encouragement there. I didn't really know a whole bunch. But one of the things that I began to figure out is that there was this promise that Christ was coming back. At times, I've got to be honest with you, that really excited me. I'm going, man, Christ is coming back. And uh, I was a young Christian in the 70s. And if you know anything about being a young Christian in the 70s, they had a whole bunch of these rapture films that came out. And they would either bless your heart or scare you to death. I mean, it was one of those things, you know, you'd be watching that and all of a sudden the people are going, you're going, okay, I'm going to make another decision. Well, you've already been saved. No, I'm going to make it again because I want to make sure that if Christ comes back, I'm going. It was just kind of one of those things that, you know, encouraged you on one part, but kind of scared you to death on the other part. And so this morning as we begin to look at this Advent season, it's to help encourage us in this time 
of waiting. How many of you have heard about the return of Christ since you were a little kid? I mean, I, I realize that not everybody went to church when they were little, but from a little kid, you know, and, you know, the preacher would always preach, and it could be when? Today. And you kind of, you know, knew that, but here you are maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years older now, and you're going, okay, if I preach that Christ could come back today, you'd hear that, and yet there's something in their mind that says, you know, I don't know, it's been 30, 40, 50 years, he hasn't come back yet, maybe it's not even going to happen in my lifetime. Well, Advent is to point back in this waiting that was done by the nation of Israel, but also to help us in the day that we are living. And so one thing that I would like to encourage you is, is to kind of, in this four weeks, we've put up some uh, family worship guides. You don't have to do this. We just want to help you with that. I realize that Advent is really different for a lot of you. Some of you uh, have done that before. We asked in our uh, life group this morning, and about half the people or about a quarter of the people said that they were aware of it. Other people said we've never done it in our home. That's perfectly fine. I do want to say right up front that Advent and the celebration or the practice of Advent, if you want to call it that, is not an ordinance. What does that mean, that it's not an ordinance? There's really two ordinances that we see in the Bible that are kind of ordinances for the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're instructed, if we come to Christ, to be baptized. We're also instructed that until he comes back, that we are to absorb the Lord's Supper and communion. And those are the two ordinances of the church. We're to continue to do those until that time when Christ comes back. This is not an ordinance. This is something that began probably about 500 years after the death of Christ in the early church. And they were, you know, a little bit liturgical uh, in those days. And, And they said, you know, this would be a good mindset at this season of year to anticipate Christmas and the coming of Christ. Now, one thing they didn't have in 500, you know, the year 500, they didn't have Christmas decorations coming out in October. They didn't have music playing, you know, 24-7 and all those kind of things where they, you know, kind of had that Christmas season pushed upon you. No, they were waiting Christmas, and they were doing it in the isolation of their homes, and the church helped them with this, you know, helped them kind of organize their thoughts and this anticipation of this coming day. And so uh, there's not one right way to do Advent. Uh, there are some people that do it very liturgically. There are some people that said, okay, you have to have a pink candle and three purple candles and one white candle in the middle. Others will say, you know, you have to have a wreath. You have to have a wreath. Every one of these things have symbolism. And they're good symbolisms, but I, I will tell you that none of this is found in the Bible. I just want to be really honest that, look, this is not an ordinance, and you're not going to be able to turn your, your Bibles open to a place and it says, now thou shalt have three purple candles. And make sure that, the, that there's a pink hue of one candle and wait to the, you know, that last day for the Christ candle in the middle. But there is significance. For, for a long, long time, people, as they have celebrated Advent and that purpose of getting their hearts and their minds ready for this coming of Christ, they've done it because they, they said this helps them to remember. It's very, very similar. If you were here for our Good Friday service, it's one of the reasons why we have a Good Friday service. Good Friday, and I, I tell people right up front, I said, now if you're wanting to be encouraged, <laughs> you know, and you just want to be encouraged by the Good Friday service, it's probably not the service you want to come to because it's kind of a heavy service. Christ has died. 
And we're not celebrating that he has risen from the dead yet. This is Friday. This is not Sunday. And so we have a heaviness. Now, why would we want to create a heaviness when you and I know that he has risen from the dead and we can rejoice? So that we can really, really get the depth of what happened when Christ died for our sins. And so for a good Friday and for Saturday, we're kind of there in that darkness, just like the disciples. They did not know that he was going to rise from the dead. He had promised it. He had said that it was going to happen, but they had not experienced it yet. And then on that day of resurrection, they got to experience an empty tomb and an empty grave. And they rejoiced. It was life-changing. But before then, look what's happening. They're, they're starting to fight with one another. They're starting to accuse one another. They're starting to get doubts. Peter cannot even give a testimony that he knows Christ. Folks, there's a purpose in waiting, anticipating. There's a purpose of even doing something in what some would call kind of a liturgical way. A lot of times people, people from uh, Protestant churches, uh, Baptist churches especially, say, well, you know, I think that's a Catholic thing. And... Uh, Catholics do that, Methodists do it, Presbyterians do it. Really, Christians, a lot of Christians do it, guys. It was never meant to be a denominational thing. It was always to do something to help the hearts and minds of Christians to get ready and to remember. And I told the life group this morning, the reason of the season. And, you know, I'm not really big on the little quips and stuff, but it really does. It gets our hearts and minds ready for the season, and it keeps us in mind. So, So what do these things mean? Well, this is the one from Carly in our house that we have used. It usually involves greenery to represent everlasting life and the fulfillment of life. So you use evergreens that don't die, but they just continually are green. Usually it's a round wreath. Talk about eternity, just the eternal nature of it. Then you have these different candles, and the candles represent the light of Christ. Again, you can totally celebrate Advent without uh, all these different things. Uh, the four candles uh, they're on that, that are on the outside, they represent uh, a lot of different things. Because it's not a Bible verse attached to this, people have made up different symbolisms. One symbolism of the four outside candles before you get to the Christ candle is the four centuries, 400 years, when the Bible was just silent. God was silent. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was 400 years when there wasn't a prophet, there wasn't an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or somebody else. And for 400 years, guys, there was silence. And so sometimes these outside candles represent that, the 400 years. Again, there's not a verse that tells us do it this way, but we use the symbolism especially to instruct our hearts and minds, but especially our kids. It's a way of training up our kids to really be mindful of preparing them for the true reason for the season. Uh, A lot of times, kind of the most traditional representation of these four candles is hope and love and joy. Usually the the pink candle is the joy candle. You do that on the third week. And peace. Uh, They are purple. These are purple because of the royalty. Who's coming? A king is coming. And royal um, and his royalty, and then that one in the middle, this white one, usually is white because it's the purity of Christ, and it represents. And you light this one on December 24th or on Christmas Day. That's kind of what the wreath is. It's what the symbolism and what it represents. But all of this is to point us of this anticipation. 
that a king is coming. Now let me give you the historical background of that. Again, we're going to open up to Isaiah chapter 9, but you're not going to say, see in there, and as you light the Advent candle, you know, you're not going to see that in the Scripture. There's no mention of it in the, the Scripture. This is something that we've just simply done to help and reminding us of these scriptural truths. So is this an ordinance that we are commanded to do? No. Are we going to find any reference in the Bible that says, Thou shalt light the pink candle on the third week? Are we going to find that in the Bible? No. But can it be a very beneficial thing of training our heart and mind, especially in a very chaotic world? There's just all kinds of things going on. How many of you would agree that in your lives, December may be one of the busiest months of your entire life on your family schedule? Just kind of raise your hand. So, okay. And, and yet, you know, we get a couple of weeks off from school. I don't know that you get a couple of weeks off of work for, for y'all that are not, you know, that you have a job aside from the school system. But, you know, this is a time that in one way you go, man, this could be a laid back time. And yet it's one of the most chaotic parts of the entire year. That's one of the reasons why I think this is helpful and beneficial to us. Because not only does it ground us in scriptural truth, but in our day, when the culture says 90 miles an hour is not fast enough to complete everything you need to do in December, you need to go about 120 miles an hour, this slows our heart down, causes us to pause, causes us to reflect. Hey, God, thank you. In a world full of darkness, you brought a great light. In a world that was broken, you brought, uh, you brought a rescuer. In my own life, I needed a Savior, and you brought a Messiah. This is why we do this. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, Israel was going through a hard time. They were in a time when, uh, uh, out of their own rebellion, their own sinfulness, um, God still blessed them. God would still, he was still keeping his covenant with them. They did not always keep their covenant with God. And so they went through times of correction. They went through times where other com- uh, countries like uh, the Babylon and other people like the Babylonians would come in and overtake them, take them captive. And this particular setting of Isaiah chapter 9, here's what's going on to the nation of Israel. There are these fierce people called the Assyrians. And they are the enemies of the Israel, the people of Israel. And so these are two warring parties. The Syrians are a mighty war machine. They uh, are going into to, to lands and just taking lands over. Um, uh, maybe an illustration that is somewhat in our time frame of our century. Remember what happened with Nazi Germany in the beginning of the 19, late 1930s and 1940s. Uh, they went into Poland, took Poland over, went into this area, took that area over. That's what was happening. The Assyrians were these people that were going in. They did not fear God. They did not worship God. And they would go in and they would take these other countries captive. And as they would take them captive, sometimes they would not get out of that captivity and those people would be lose their freedom and they would be there for the rest of their lives. So it's a very dark time in Israel. Look at verse 2. In the midst of this darkness, look at this promise of hope. Isaiah is a prophet of God. A prophet of God is a spokesman for God. Somebody who follows God and God has called out to be a speaker. And here's what Isaiah says 
in this very dark time of Israel. Look what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them that light has shone. Now, is that, and when you're in the dark, metaphorically, or any other way, is it good to have light? Especially emotion. When you're in the, in, in the dark emotionally, is it good to have some hope and some light? These people are not just metaphorically in the dark. There is evil around them. The Syrians are they're taking their families and, and putting them in captivity. And in that time, the prophet comes out and says, God's going to send a light. And so do you think that made them happy or do you think that made them sad? Yeah. There's going to be a light. We were needing the light. You know, we need somebody to come in, clean house, take charge, and, and organize an army so that we can fight these Assyrians and we can save our land and save our people and, and ultimately save our families. So that's kind of the mindset. They're excited by this. But I want you to know that when Isaiah said that, I want you to be reminded that before this would really happen, there was going to be 800 years. Now, you can sit there and say that you would rather have the good news even if it was a long time coming. Or wait, don't give me the good news until it actually is about to happen. You could probably make a case of both ways. When you're in darkness, though, you want the promise of light even if it doesn't come that immediate day. Sometimes just the hope that is there. See, one of the things that kind of oils your engines of the mind and the heart is hope. You lose hope, guys, you lose a lot of things. You lose hope for a marriage. You, hope, you lose hope in your finances. Have you ever been so overwhelmed, and don't raise your hand on this one, but have you ever been so overwhelmed by your finances that really you, you look at it and you do the math 14 different ways and you're going, there's no way. There's literally no way that this is going to work out. And you lose hope. And then you go into work the next day and they said, you know, you've really done well on the job. We're, we're, we're going to be giving you a raise. And we can't promise you exactly what that raise is going to be yet. But we're going to, get, you know, we're working and we had a good year. And it's December right now, but in January, we're going to be building in a raise. How many of, that, of you would that give a little bit of hope to? You don't even know what the raise is. You don't know when it's going to actually come, if it's going to come January or February. But you're going, hey, at least there's some hope. I can put the calculator down for the moment. I can put the bills to the side for the moment. And at least for this moment, I can rest and hope that an answer is coming. That's what Isaiah did. Not by his own you know, instruction, but by, because God told him to do that. Now, in his mercy and grace, God gives this picture of hope and, and to get, encourage them that they are still his covenant people. God reminds them that he will keep his covenant. And how is God going to do this? By bringing a Messiah. That's actually the song that we sang. The second song that we sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We're actually going to sing that at the end. And hopefully you will understand even that much more the words that you are singing. We love Christmas songs that we understand. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, we understand that. Okay, there's this reindeer, the other reindeer didn't play with him, and so he was sad all the time, and then one time he becomes very heroic, 
because this, you know, this nose that was so offensive to everybody else actually becomes this light and Santa actually needs him. And so we sing that song and we're going, okay, great song. Why? Because I can understand it. You sing some of the older traditional Christmas songs and we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And we sing it because we know the words and we're going, I mean, did we really realize that Israel was captive? If I were to ask you truth now, if I were to ask you before the sermon, because I've already given you the answer a couple different times, who took Israel captive in the Old Testament? Would any of y'all would have been able to answer that? I think some of y'all would. Yeah, you're students of the word. You said, well, it could have been the Babylonians because they did it. The Egyptians certainly did it. It could have been, you know, the Assyrians. Pretty short list there. But we sing this song because look what it says. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is another name of Christ, this promise of a Messiah. Then we sing, and ransom captive Israel. We're captives here. This war machine of the Assyrians, they, they have us captive. Our children may never know what freedom is. That mourns in lonely exile, taken out of their promised land or taken out of their home until the Son of God appears. Does it make sense now? So we sing that. Let's sing it with meaning and with purpose so that we can understand. Now, has that happened to us? Is this just history? Or is there a form of this that is very symbolic of what happens to you and I? Have you ever been captive, a ransom captive? See, I can't go a sermon without mentioning Genesis 3. It's just not going to ever be a gospel message if we can't go back to the fall. God in his perfection and his love, he creates us as, as perfect people, but fallibly perfect. There was no sin in us, but we had the ability to sin, and we decided to sin. Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God, and they became captive at that point. The first mention of the gospel is really in Genesis chapter 3, there in the beginning, when it says that one day Jesus is going to stomp on that serpent's head. So we see this promise all the way back in Genesis. And then we see it throughout the word of God at times like this. In Isaiah, when he says, look, right now you're captive and you're really captives. There really is a real army that has overtaken you and you really are. Maybe your children may never see freedom in their lifetime. But there's a promise. In this darkness, there's a light that's coming. And this time when you are overwhelmed and captive, there is one that's going to set you free. Now look down at verse 6. I wish I could preach through this whole thing. This is some of the richest soil of the Old Testament. It's kind of weird. I mean, you look at verse 5, just a real quick aside. I don't have verse 5, but it talks about taking all the boots and making a big burning pile of them. And there's a lot of language in here and going, what does that mean? The promise is that there's going to be a day that there's an end of war. And all the boots that have ever been from every soldier are going to be in this big pile, and they're going to burn that because there will be no war anymore. Now, is he talking about the day that we live or a day that's to come? A day to come. So this prophecy has some relevance to them, has some relevance to us. It's going to become even more relevant even in the future. Some of this prophecy has been fulfilled. Some of it is yet to be fulfilled. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This passage here, very. how many of you have heard that before? Either on a Christmas card, or you've read it, and you, you know, you've seen that, and you're going, yeah, that's talking about the promise of the Messiah. Well, that's exactly what it was. I, I want to tell you that it has two ways that we're going to kind of illustrate that this morning. Or this verse has two natures. One is that it is prophetic in nature. The other one is that it's very uh, pragmatic in nature. If you're a note taker, you know, you can put down, okay, prophetic, pragmatic. First, the prophetic. How is this prophetic? Well, Isaiah says this in obedience to God, and he gives it to the people of Israel. And how many years is it going to be before the Messiah actually comes? 800 years. And when God doesn't answer your prayers in two or three days, you're going, okay, God, I've prayed. I've prayed three or four times. I've I've made mention of this, and yet I have not seen an answer. Can you imagine a promise being made that is not fulfilled in its completion, or, you know, do you really see the fruit of it for 800 years? That's amazing, guys. It really is amazing. How do you keep faith in the midst of a promise that is given that takes 800 years? How do you keep encouraged during that time? See, that's the pragmatic part. Not that we have to wait 800 years, but there's many times in your lives that you've prayed and you have sincerely prayed. You've prayed for family members. You've prayed for your marriage. You've prayed for your finances. You've prayed for different things. And you just haven't seen it come into being. Now, sometimes it's going to be because God is going to say no to that particular request. Other times it's because you're just not ready for it. Other times God is still developing things. God always has an answer, guys. I don't think that God has ever taken on this attitude of stinginess. He goes, okay, let me just see how far I can yank the chain. God doesn't wake up in the morning wondering how far he can yank your chain. He doesn't. That's not the spirit of God. He's a compassionate God, a loving God that wants to build faith in your life. And yet 800 years? I mean, honestly, not that we would live 800 years, but how many of you say, I could lose my faith after 800 years of not seeing a promise to this? Yeah. And yet that's what's happening here. It starts off, for unto a child is born. There's really some good theology in here. The first part talks about the very humanity of Christ. Then it talks about the deity of Christ, that he's going to be given. This isn't something we've earned. This is a gift from God. This is a God-man. So that still blows my mind today. How can you be 100% human and 100% God? Anybody figure that one out yet? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, was 100% human and 100% God, and not 50-50. You know, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, okay, I'm human. Tuesday, you know, that's not, he was always full of humanity. He was always the fullness of deity. He was the God-man. That blows my mind. It doesn't work out in a world when one plus one equals two. One plus one doesn't equal one. And so it's hard for us to comprehend. You can imagine how hard it was for them to comprehend, but look at the beauty of this promise. God is going to answer this darkness with the light that is fully man and is fully God. How is it pragmatic? Look at this first description. 
wonderful counselor. Uh, usually we use the word wonderful as an adjective. It's not an adjective here. It's actually a noun. Now, I was never good at this part of, of English structure and all that. But sure, I think that you were, okay? And, and so that makes a big difference if something is a noun instead of an adjective, doesn't it? Because if it's an adjective, it's going to describe the next word, which is a noun. Something. But if it's a noun by itself, it's kind of individual. When we look at this, most of the time, you and I would say, wonderful counselor. And we just kind of roll it all together. It's actually, in the original, in the original Hebrew, it's actually two different words. Wonderful counselor. Now, they are meant to go together, but they are two individual words. Now, what's the significance of that word wonderful being a noun instead of an adjective? This. The word actually means in Hebrew, incomprehensible. It's used throughout the Old Testament and times that God would describe himself. He said, look, your brain, who I am. Your brain, who I am. There are things that you will not get about me. You're just going to have to, in faith, in faith, understand the part that you can and then trust me as it goes out. Have you found that that's an important part of the Christian life? That you take the things you can comprehend and by faith you begin to trust the things that you can't comprehend? I can't comprehend fully God, fully man. I I cannot comprehend that. But by faith, folks, I believe it. The Trinity, three and yet one? I cannot comprehend that. I believe with all my heart. That there's three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three kind of flavors of God, three persons of God. And so we hold to these things. These are foundational beliefs. And we see here, what's the pragmatic part of that? Is that just theology, Bobby? No, the pragmatic part of him being called wonderful is that he's incomprehensible. In other words, God is doing things that sometimes your brain is not going to be able to conceive. God, I said, fix this. Had somebody just the other night, we had dinner with some folks, some friends, and uh, I, I didn't preach the sermon. I didn't say, you shouldn't do that, which is also, always temptation if you're having supper with the pastor. Okay, And I'm not their pastor immediately anymore. But whenever you have supper with the pastor, there's always that temptation for the pastor to go, that's not really biblical, that's not really good theology. And she said, I've prayed about something. And she goes, I've given him to Monday to do this. And Carly didn't have to kick me under the table. Usually, you know, she can just see the fight. You know, I'm ready to fire it off. And she usually, you know, just gives me this Holy, Holy Spirit nudge under the table. Not here, not now. And I didn't. And she didn't even have to kick me. But guys, aren't there times in our lives like that that we may not have said by Monday, that we really have kind of put this, you know, and, and what God is doing, we're going, okay, God, if I was God, and he's going, but you're not, <laughs> and there's a good reason why you're not, but God, if I was you, I would fill in the blank. And that what God is doing instead is incomprehensible. Your brain, the endless wonder, the incomprehensible nature and wisdom of God. You say, well, Bobby, that doesn't help me uh, a whole bunch. Well, I hope it encourages you a little bit that on those times that your little brain 
is overwhelmed of why God isn't doing it, that you can take courage. You can take courage by this prophetic word. Hey, I've got an answer. God always keeps his promises. 800 years coming and going. Guys, there's, there was times, I'm sure the nation of Israel said, did God forget, not just to be gracious, did he forget his promises? But I can also imagine that you and I have said that. We may not have said that out loud. We may have not written that on, on a piece of paper. But I promise you, that kind of doubt enters the heart of every believer. Why? Because here's our brain. And he's wonderful, guys. He's incomprehensible. My ways are not your ways. And we can be frustrated with that. Or, let me give you an alternative. We can admit that we're in the dark. And that we need a great light. But I'm overwhelmed. This is what makes sense in my mind. But I understand against you, I am in the dark. Will you bring your great light to my darkness. Tell me, God. Will you just help me? Wonderful what? Wonderful counselor. Counselor. What, what comes to your mind when you think of a counselor? Somebody who is maybe wise. Somebody who is, um, you know, gives direction and ability. Somebody who is trained to deal with complex things so they can give you an answer. Back in those days, a counselor would have been really associated with kings. Especially with Israel, they would have thought of Solomon. They would have thought, man, he was like this great king, one of the greatest kings we've ever had. And he was like so smart. He was just wise. Well, they take that wisdom. They take this role of counselor. And the promise is that there's one coming that really truly will be able to counsel you and direct you in the steps of your life. The greatest thing about this counsel that's coming, though, is not only is he incomprehensible, is he going to be able to shine light in our darkness? Is he going to be able to give us kind of this, uh, this direction for our lives? But he's going to understand. We all have friends. We all have family members. We all have loved ones. We all have coworkers. We all have in-laws that are more than ready to tell you what you should do in your predicament. Do you, do you have people in your life? And, and they mean well. I mean, I'm not saying that that is a bad thing, but, you know, they mean well. And they really do. Well, if I was you, and then they'll tell you the solution. And sometimes these people, again, are very caring. They're very well-meaning. And they are, for the best of their ability, they're using their little brain to help you in your little brain. And they really do want the best for your life. But there's other times... You're going, it's kind of frictional because you're going, you don't even understand where we are. Someone who's not married, that wants to give you marriage advice. Well, if I was you, well, you're not me and you don't have to live with her. No, you know, you know it's one of those things. That, I didn't mean it. Like, <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> one more little slip for the blessing tree out there. You know, I'm so <laughs> I mean, again, remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about those people that don't have kids that want to give you advice for your kids? Well, if I was you, I would sit him down and wear his bottom out. And you'd go, well, I have tried that. <laughs> I do it anymore. Defax is coming in. You know, it's just one of those things you, they don't get where you are. 
The other day, the stock market went down, I think Friday, like 40 points. Let's say it went down 400 points. Let's say that you're in a fixed income and that most of your retirement is in the stock market. And all of a sudden, you look down your little portfolio and you go, man, we just lost $3,000. And Warren Buffett calls you up. Now, on that same day, Warren Buffett, a big stock guy, okay, says, I lost millions and I feel for you. I'm going, no, you don't, because you lost millions. I lost maybe thousands, but you still have millions, and I just have thousands, okay? So Warren Buffett, you know, I, I hear that you're saying that you lost the same percentage that I did. You lost millions uh, to, to my thousands, if not hundreds, if not tens. But believe me, you're not in the same place that I am, Warren Buffett. You still have $900 billion, and so losing a couple million really isn't going to fade your day. What's your point, Pastor? This wonderful counselor who is the God-man. You get what we're leading up to? He's wonderful, incomprehensible. He's a counselor. He's going to give you direction. He's fully God and he's fully man. We put all that together. Here's the pragmatic part. You are never without a high priest who doesn't know where you have been, where you're going, and sympathetic and empathetic to where you are. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16. Now, this would not have come unless there would have been a Christ. We're not diminishing the role of the Holy Spirit here. We're just saying, okay, because Christ came, the Holy Spirit can tell us and his counsel to us, and his guidance to us, the fullness of this. Since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Which way did he pass through the heavens? He, he passed one time this way when he took on flesh in the incarnation, and then he resurrected, and now he's beside God. The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Does that sound like something you do in dark times or in days of great light? That you hold on to a confession. Usually that's dark times. That you have to hold on to something. So what is this confession? What are we holding on to in this dark time? Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then. Because of this, because we know that we have this high priest that has not only faced every temptation, everything in life. You've been discouraged. You've been betrayed. Go talk to Jesus. I think he knows a little bit about being betrayed. You've been attacked. I think he knows what it's like to be attacked. You know what it's like to be even kind of disowned by your family? Jesus actually went through that. His brothers and sisters, you know, they mocked him. Go read the Bible. They didn't believe until after the resurrection. Oh, but he never had financial problems. You know the reason why? Because he didn't have anything to begin with. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to put his head. Guys, there's not one thing that you ever go through in your life that Christ has not in this God-man experience, in this fullness of humanity experience. Why? So that we can have an incomprehensible counselor that in those days, that not that he's going to fix everything, but that we can trust. Okay, God, you're a 
promise keeper. You're one that keeps your promise. Verse 16, and then we'll go. Let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you're a Christian, one thing that you cannot say, I mean, you can say it, but it will have no validity. God doesn't understand. You can never say God doesn't care because he always cares. You can never say, well, God doesn't love because he always loves. And you can never say, God doesn't know what I'm going through. He took on flesh, God on high, clothed himself in the frailty of humanity to walk this earth. He got hungry, he got tired, all without sin. So that when we're tired and we're cranky and we don't know where to go, we say, God, you just don't understand. He says, but I actually do. But I actually do. And it's not just some Warren Buffett that says, yeah, maybe on a small scale. No. He clothed himself in flesh, just like your flesh. The God-man. Why? So that we can have a wonderful counselor. So perhaps even in this, maybe you're going through a dark period right now in your life and you need light. Look at the promise that's there, that has come. Now the fullness of this, we'll get into this next week, the fullness of this won't come into the second coming. There will be a day, believe it or not, that we won't need a wonderful counselor anymore. Right now this is kind of in the process of heaven. But Christ has come. And there's an invitation there in Hebrews. Let you boldly go before the throne room of God. Will you come and say, God, will you show mercy? Will you give grace? Will you give light in the midst of all the darkness that I'm experiencing right now? Will you give some light? I'm not saying you have to fix it by Monday. But God, I'd like it if you didn't wait 800 years. I think that's a fair prayer. But God, if you wait 100 years, thank you that you will sustain me. And your promises are real. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, this morning as we uh, begin this Advent season, Father, Father, it is hard for us who grow up always knowing that we can look back and see this Messiah who's come. Father, we've seen songs about Mary and Joseph and, and, and little donkeys and a stable. We've, we've sung them since we were little kids. So it's really hard for us, Father, to go back and imagine a time of captivity when there was only the promise of a Messiah and that promise had not come into to, to fullness yet. So Father, during this Advent season, will you give us a spirit of expectation of waiting so that on this Christmas, if your grace sustains us life into that day, that we can say like Simeon said, the child has come. All is finished. All is well. Until that day, Father, give us light in the darkness. Give us hope in the midst of the struggles that we face. And let us know that, Father, you're a promise keeper. You don't break your promises. Until you fulfill every promise, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We 
love you and we thank you, Father. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.